Hello. Before we begin the podcast, I would like to acknowledge that False Dichotomy is recorded on the treaty lands and territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit, and that we recognize and uphold the significance of the Dish with One Spoon Covenant. We acknowledge that this land is home to many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people, and we respect and honor their relationship with this land. We are grateful for the Indigenous people who are stewards of this land and have taken care of this area for thousands of years. As we conduct our research or create art, we are grateful for the opportunity to use these lands and recognize and appreciate the historic and ongoing relationship our Indigenous neighbours have with this land. We promise to honour and respect these lands and the Indigenous people who call them home, and always continue to learn and work towards reconciliation. Thank you for listening. So hi everybody and welcome to the second episode of False Dichotomy. For those new to the series, I'm your host, Sam Majoros. I'm a wildlife biologist and bioinformatician, as well as a writer, actress, and general theater person. In this podcast, we bring together scientists and artists to showcase how fun and approachable science can be, but also how important and valuable art is, as well as to discover new ways to communicate science using art. So this episode is really exciting as it is Arctic or Northern themed. A lot of my work focuses on Arctic biology, and I definitely appreciate the beauty of the Arctic. So this area is super interesting, and I'm really excited to record this episode. So on this episode, we have two wonderful scientists and two amazing artists whose work focuses on or is inspired by the North or Arctic regions. So we started with science last time. So let's go to the artists first in this episode. So our first guest is Rob Neggs. Rob is a cellist originally from Australia, but who found his way to the sub-Arctic and Churchill, Manitoba. His work is inspired by the Arctic and is loved by both humans and beluga whales. Joining him on the artist side is Tamara Roshka. Tamara is an incredible artist whose paintings, photography, and pottery capture elements of the North. She also works as a camera operator for some documentaries. Uh, so now let's meet our scientist. First, we have Danny Noasad. Danny is a PhD student who uses DNA barcoding as a tool to assess Arctic freshwater biodiversity. She has spent a lot of the time in the Canadian Middle Arctic, where she is based out of the Canadian High Arctic Research Station. And rounding in our team for today, we have Camille Chatila Amos. Camille is an Arctic molecular ecologist who has various experience in the Arctic, including studying eDNA and aquatic macroinvertebrates in Churchill. He is also the co-founder of Neophyto Foods, which makes wonderful plant-based protein options and vegan cheese. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Thanks, Sam. Thanks so much for having us. We're so excited. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to jump into things. Uh, before we do, I'll just do a recap of how the podcast is structured, how it's going to work. Um, so we'll spend some time talking to each scientist and artist about the work they do, and the areas of their fields they're really passionate about. And then at the end, we'll have some time to work together to create a new way to communicate the science we discussed using the skills of the artists. So that can be a pitch for a play, an art piece, something musical, really anything that they can think of. Um, so we'll just start in the uh, order you were introduced. So we'll start with you, Rob. Good morning, so how's it going? <laughs> pretty good. Uh, so as I mentioned, your uh, an accomplished cellist. Can you describe what your music is like or what kind of music you play? So I'm a cellist who grew up on a steady fast diet of punk rock. So a lot of my music is influenced by that. But when I first moved to the subarctic, I started to take a bit of a turn into more of an ambient classical post-rock sort of thing, just being inspired by 
the, the movement of belugas in, in the Hudson Bay and Northern Lights, which is all very funny because I initially moved up to Churchill to see polar bears for the first time. <laughs> so polar bears were a big deal in my family growing up. So my mum, who is sadly not with us anymore, she kind of led the charge on, no, polar bears need to be saved. I love polar bears. And we'd be watching Nat Geo and Discovery Channel just watching these polar bears. So it was incredible to see one in real life. And not just one. I saw, I, I think last count, I saw 240 polar bears up there. Over oh, wow. Time. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I definitely, it was really exciting when I went to the Arctic for the first time too. Seeing polar bears was definitely a, a big deal. <laughs> uh, just a change in landscape is absolutely incredible especially coming from like big metropolis, Brisbane, Australia, and then flying over 16,000 16, kilometers up to the subarctic right. and 800 people. The only way in and out is by flight or train. Yeah, just see sheer isolation is amazing and definitely sure. a great change of pace. <laughs> Uh, what was that like transition like? Do you remember like kind of what it felt like kind of seeing that northern landscape for the first time? It was pretty incredible, to be honest. Um, so by the time I got to Churchill, I'd just spent the last year and a half couch surfing across Europe and Scandinavia, and eventually got my way over to North America. Uh, while I was in Montreal, I had my high school English teacher who was following me on Facebook say, oh, you should go up to Churchill, Manitoba and visit my best friend. She owns a hotel up there. And at the time it was like, ah, oh, to, to visit Churchill is one thing. It's, it's pretty expensive, especially on a, a couch surfing backpacker budget. Right. So I, I said to my, um, I said to Brooke, my contacts there, I was like, it'd be great to come up and visit, but if you've got a job, let me know. And then about two weeks later, I get an email from Belinda Fitzpatrick, the owner of the Tundra Inn and Hotel. And she mentioned a job to run an open mic and work in hospitality up there. And I think a week later, I started my Canadian visa application and within six months, I was up in Churchill. Wow, yeah. And yeah, the rest is history pretty much. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm a bit of a, a fanboy for Churchill and getting people up there to see polar bears and just living in a different environment surrounded by some of the most hearty, loving people in the world. So, What's your kind of favorite thing about Churchill and being up there? Just small town communities. It, everybody's kind of experience everything all at once. Uh, there isn't a year that's gone by where Churchill hasn't had to stick out some sort of tragedy or climatic event. Uh, so in 2017, when I when I got back to Canada after a year in Australia trying to renew my visa, um, there was a snowstorm to end all snowstorms up there. Mm. And I wasn't able to get back up due to the train going down due to the, the melting of permafrost and just uh, decline of the, the train line to get up there. So I was stuck in Winnipeg for a while and everybody was stuck in Churchill. And yeah, it was a crazy event that led to a crazy year. It was also the same year I met my now wife, Danny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the first time I went to Churchill as well, we were supposed to take the train, but it was, it was at the end, probably that time when it went down and it was out for quite a while. Yeah, yeah, that was, was a crazy time. Um, yeah, when did you go to Churchill? Was I there when you came up? I don't think so. I can't remember what year it was. It was in like summer before my last, summer before my fourth year, I think. I did the Arctic Ecology field course with Sally. 
Um, I don't remember what year it was off the top of my head. I think it was 2018 because that was the first year of my master's. The, yes, yeah. The summer before my master's. And that's that was my first time up in Churchill. And we went together that time. Yes, yeah. Oh, okay, well, I did not put two and two together that we were in Churchill at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's wild. So what is the songwriting process like from kind of getting that inspiration to coming out to a finished product? It comes a lot from just rehearsing and practicing other numbers and then I'll get so I'll, I'll explain what I do. So I'm a I'm a cellist with a loop station and a variety of effects that I like to explore and experiment with sound. And it'll get to a point when I'm rehearsing and I'll pick up on a certain lick or a certain phrase or a certain progression that I'll just decide to build and build on that. And I'll usually think about a vision that I've had in Churchill or an experience I've had just even coming into Canada, uh, the last year or two has definitely been a bit more focused on social status and immigration and just the, the events of the last couple of years. It, it's been a trying couple of years for a lot of people, if not everyone in the world. Um, and just trying to write music to reflect that is, it's very complex, but it it's very cathartic at the same time. Mm -hmm, for sure. So yeah, when, when writing music, I'll pick up on a phrase and kind of loop on that and see where it can go and eventually drop loops in and out. But at the moment, I'm currently rewriting all my music and arranging it for larger ensembles so I can pitch it to different orchestras around the world who can perform the music that I write without my actual being there, which is, yeah, it, it's been a great experience being able to just have the time to relearn all my music theory and learn how different instruments work and their ranges and what sounds really impactful and what will serve the arrangement and composition at that time. Yeah, that sounds really cool. You know, what kind of things do you have to kind of consider when you're scaling it up to that like orchestra level? Well, it's also researching what the orchestras themselves are capable of, what sort of instrumentation they have, how large the orchestra itself is, which is something I'm, I've become but I've started to learn while being in Winnipeg is, okay, I've, I've got these sort of instruments and friends and acquaintances I know in Winnipeg who can play these instruments. And I've, I've showed certain people the, the tracks I have currently, and they've said, oh, this would sound really good in this. So for instance, my, uh, a great saxophone player called Rowan Greger, he mentioned, oh, it'd be great to have some tenor sax in there. And that got me thinking because I've never written for any sort of horns or woodwind it's always just been for strings and punk rock bands, pretty much. Right. So that's that's been the last month for me is exploring what a saxophone can do and what a saxophone can uh, provide to a to an arrangement and a composition. And yeah, it, it's been cool exploring that option just because it's there's there's an intimacy and a bit of breath in that that you don't get from strings. So just having that contrast in there has been really cool to play with. Yeah, that sounds really cool. I was in band in high school. <laughs> like, I had no quite oh, of saxophone play? players. I played French horn. <laughs> oh, oh, where are you? Okay, cool. <laughs> no, I've, I've been I've been talking to a number of people about. Okay, I need a friend, uh, a French horn player, and a baritone sax nice. player. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So when I do shows in Guelph, I'll I'll hit you up. <laughs> it's been a long time. Uh, so, but I would love to have a French horn, but they're just expensive, and I don't have one currently oh, that's a shame the, the sound is absolutely gorgeous so that's yeah that's a great instrument to play 
So do you have a favorite project or song that you've written or worked on? There's a couple I usually come back to. Um, there's a song called Summer that's just been with me since 2017 and that's just evolved over time and I've it, it yeah I came across a quote recently that art like music and art is never really finished it's just abandoned and that's definitely been very prevalent over the last six months where I've just been able to rewrite and rearrange my previous pieces to make them larger and more powerful in a way so Summer is definitely one and a song called A Natural Response, which I dedicated to my time on a Zodiac on the Churchill River playing for beluga whales. Oh. Um, yeah, so that that one, I'm, I'm probably not going to try and rearrange that one just because I've, yeah, it, it's, it's special to me. And especially in the context of playing a performance and having a large group perform, it'd be nice to just have one piece that's dedicated to my time looping and performing as a solo artist. And I think that's a great song to kind of dwell on. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And what was yeah. the experience like playing for the Belugas? Oh my gosh. I, I wish <laughs> I could do it every day, honestly. It, yeah. That, that was definitely a very happy time in my life, just being able to arrange a time to get out on a boat and perform for hours on end for a very, yeah, a very different audience, let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> And just watching people kind of watch the interaction of beluga whales and music and having tourist boats come up with, yeah, just capturing and photographing this events of human and animal kind of interacting together. It, it's cool. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's super cool. Uh, it's not something, I guess, you see a lot, that kind of interaction um, between music and, and animals, at least that, like, that close you playing for them. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, it was definitely very special. And due to current legislation, it's it's kind of a gray area if I'd be allowed to do it again. But right. Hopefully I can get some grants passed and make some headway where I'm able to do that a little bit more regularly. Yeah, that would be incredible. Yeah, just to go up to Churchill for a, a summer every year, just for a few weeks and be able to do that. And so what kind of other places have you performed at? Um, has there been a particularly memorable performance somewhere? Oh, there's been a few. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I grew up going to a festival called Woodford Folk Festival. So I went there as a child between ages eight and 16 to the point where I was volunteering as an assistant stage manager at the festival from 16 to 19. And by the time I was 21, I was leaving university. I was about to go on this couch surfing adventure that eventually led me to come to Canada. And I, I was starting to write EPs and write all these songs and starting to pitch my products to festivals back in Australia. And Woodford Folk Festival was on the top of that list to get back there and be able to do that. So when I sent my application in for 2017, um, the organizer was like, this is great. I'd, I'd love to see this live, but have you considered using any sort of visual components to accompany your work to really transport audiences to, to Churchill, to this place where you've written about and loved so much and loved so hard and promoted? And I was like, yeah, that is, that is a clever idea. That is a great idea. So I was able to team up with a videography company called Handcraft Creative here in Winnipeg who regularly go up to Churchill to shoot for the likes of Tra Travel Manitoba, 
and they also worked on a documentary called No I'm Here, where they teamed up with a, a friend and artist called Cal Bateski, who coordinated a festival called Seawalls Churchill, where she invited 15 artists from all over the world to descend upon Churchill and do these massive murals across town. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great documentary if you've got the time and means to do so called No I'm Here. Anyway, getting back to Woodford. So I was able to coordinate, <laughs> sorry. I was able to no, coordinate. No, it's all good. To, yeah, I was able to get these visuals sorted to accompany my performances. And Woodford were absolutely stoked to see something like that. I was able to fly home for Christmas in 2018 and was able to perform over that uh, Boxing Day weekend into the new year at Woodford. And it, it was amazing just to have something come full circle from being a a ratty little hippie kid at age eight, <laughs> seeing all these reggae bands and whatever, to coming into Woodford, performing my work, and also to perform on the New Year's Day performance where all of the festival comes into this large natural amphitheater, and I was invited to perform as the opening, as the opening of the closing ceremony. For how how many people go? Did, did it was 15,000 people. Oh yeah, that's yeah. that's amazing. Yeah, that was that was a great way to kick off 2019. Let's put it that way. For sure. Um, yeah. And while I was at that festival, I was able to um, engage some more musical work where I was able to perform all across Australia for 52 shows, supporting an artist called Tony Childs, who's an American uh, singer, songwriter, R&B, white soul, powerhouse. Um, and yeah, that was an incredible tour. Like all, all tours have their ups and downs, but just to be right. able to see Australia replaying music is definitely, definitely ticking some boxes for a, a young musician. Yeah, for sure. Do you have any advice you would give to a younger musician who wanted to kind of pursue a career in music? Write a lot. Don't think about anyone else. Just get your body of work and keep working on it. And, until you're happy with it and then put it out there. For anyone that's a traveling musician, I definitely highly recommend going to open mics and just pitching your work. It's a great way of meeting new people. It's a great way of meeting like-minded artists and being able to collaborate with people and just getting your name out there. Um, generally be pleasant is another great, great <laughs> bit of advice. I've met a few people that are kind of jaded and snotty about it, but mm. That's not why we're here. We're we're here to write great music and great art and yeah, leave your mark and be the best person you can. Yeah, that's great advice. So we'll do one more question. So a lot of people have interests in both science and arts. Um, what has been your experience with science? Is there an aspect of that you're active in or particularly interested in? The, lo the last week I've been pretty angry at the world with um, what's happening regarding climate change. It's it's right. it's abhorrent that we're not actually doing a lot about it, a lot about it. So in the next year or two, I'd love to write a bit more music, kind of dedicated towards that cause and my thoughts and feelings about it. But it, just in general, the the practice of art and science are very similar. You're you're coming in with an idea and you're spending time isolated trying to work on that idea and then you present it to people see if it catches you're constantly applying for funding and mm -hmm. grants to 
be able to pursue your your practice and work. And in in time, even your results will change. You're always reflecting on that. And yeah, so the, yeah, the practices of art and science are very similar. Yeah, I found that a lot as well. Um, when it comes, yeah, the way thinking about starting a research project is kind of similar to thinking about starting, like writing a play or things like that. So a lot of the mindsets that we had in theater were the same mm -hmm. as, as doing biology. So maybe we'll move on to our second guest. So hello, Tamara. Hello. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. Um, so you do a variety of different types of art using different mediums and you have like a wide range. Uh, can yes. you describe what kinds of art you create? Okay. Um, so basically I started uh, painting from a young age. So one of my main things I do is paintings and I do skyscapes in particular. Um, and then I've also recently branched out into pottery and that's mostly because of the pandemic. Um, I did pottery back in art school when um, I was doing my degree there and I took a long break from it. But then since there was no art shows because of the pandemic, um, I recently started taking up pottery again. And so at, actually at the end of 2019, I started and it totally kept me afloat. And I was doing it more as just a relaxation thing for myself. Mm -hmm. And then the pandemic hit and I was like, oh, this is a great opportunity as well. <laughs> But um, people started just asking, hey, can you make me this? Can you make me that? And I'm like, okay, maybe I can. And so I started doing it more. And now I have an Etsy store. Um, and I, yeah, I'm still selling my pottery. Uh, hopefully I can get back into doing art shows. I would love to do a pottery and painting art show. So that's in the works right now. Yeah, that would be great. Um, I guess it's, yeah, just waiting for the restrictions and, and stuff like that to, to yeah. figure all that out. Hopefully things are, you know, slowly getting back to our normal or whatever that is now. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll be able to do that. So, yeah. For sure. Uh, what are the main sources of inspiration, like, for your art? Okay, so I said that I mostly do sky paintings. One of the things that... Uh, or reasons why I started doing sky paintings was as a child I always watched storms and um, looked at the sky when I was anxious or nervous about something and I'd watch uh, I'd watch storms with my mom whenever we had like a wild storm on the prairie and she just she was always very fascinated because she was also a photographer mm -hmm. so she kind of introduced me into the whole watching the sky and everything and then she got very sick at the beginning of the 2010s and I started painting around then started painting storms as a way of sort of just like calming myself and sort of recentering myself and I, I really wanted to capture the emotions and the feelings that I was feeling on the canvas and I found that a lot of people could actually see that when they were at my art shows, they would either, like, I had some people, like, start crying, and they'd be like, I have to have this painting, and I would just be, like, taken aback, because I'm like, I painted this for me, but sure, like, this is great, like, that you have this emotional connection. So that was really a thing, is that I really wanted to have an emotional connection between the viewer and my my art. So Yeah, 
like that's that's really great and it's yeah you made it for you but definitely other people can kind of look at it and kind of get that emotional response or relate to it or yeah those feelings through the art exactly I think that all art should evoke an emotion and that if people can get that connection that emotional connection like if regardless of what field they're in if they can see something in a piece of work and appreciate art I I really think that that is a successful art piece then so that's kind of my goal yeah no for sure what are the art shows typically like that you would be part of before that you're planning in the future well I've I've been part of a couple um independent galleries in Winnipeg and so basically I curate everything myself so I'm in charge of marketing and like setting it up and everything like that. So I'm part of the Edge Gallery. Um, I'm not currently a member of Creatory, but uh, over the pandemic, but I I have been in the past. And so I've been part of those two galleries. I've done uh, six solo shows and some group shows over the past year since 2015, I believe, maybe 20, yeah, 2015. And basically uh, they've been all painting mostly. Um, maybe like a, a couple other illustration pieces or photography pieces. And they've been very successful on the opening nights, especially. And then I would take uh, private tours throughout the week and do that because some people just don't want to, you know, look at art and with, with a group of people, mm-hmm. they want to have a individual kind of tour and, they want me to talk about each piece, so then that's how they pick out a piece or get some more information. So yeah, they they've been quite good. Uh, I like I love doing art shows. It's great to like hear other people's opinions on my work and like what they see in a sky piece or what they see in like an illustration that I may not have seen or like parts of the painting that stick out to them. And that I'm just like, wow, I didn't, I didn't see that. So it's really like great to like bounce these ideas and just, uh, just different visualizations of my work off other people and like hear their opinions. It's just, I love it. So I'm, I really, really want to do another show. Yeah, that sounds like a great experience. Just kind mm-hmm. of seeing everyone's different, I guess, viewpoints on your, on your work and what they exactly. take from it. Yeah, for sure. Do you have a favorite medium out of like doing the sky paintings or illustrations or pottery? Do you have something you prefer to do? Oh, this is di- difficult because <laughs> <laughs> I find, okay, I, I can't compare my ceramics to paintings for sure because they're completely different medium. Mm-hmm. They, I feel like they require a different part of my brain mentally <laughs> because let they totally do. Um, like painting, really, you need to concentrate on color theory and a lot of composition. Like, obviously, pottery and ceramics, you also need that composition. And when you're glazing, you need some color theory, but it's it's more chemical, um, mm-hmm. the way things react, like the way the glaze will react with certain clay bodies. And so it's a little bit more technical at times. Um, I really like to do uh, sculpture pottery actually. So it's not actually pottery, it's ceramic art. Uh, And so I've been experimenting a little bit more with that and creating more art pieces or functional art pieces that people can use and in their everyday work 
or everyday life rather, and they work as a functional art piece. So that's what I'm sort of leaning towards with my ceramics lately. Mm-hmm. And then I really like I I love painting acrylic uh, is what I do for my sky paintings, but I also do gouache. I'm a little bit I do I try to like always keep it. I don't know. I, I I like to do different mediums because it also keeps my main mediums fresh. Mm-hmm. I find that if I experiment with other art forms and other art mediums, then I'm able to go back with a new perspective and a new technicality for my other pieces. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes lots of sense. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so what's kind of the process that goes into like making a, a ceramic piece? Oh boy. From the very beginning? Yeah. Okay. So basically what I do first is I will sketch out some ideas or I'll have like a plan. Um, So yeah, paper and pen. I will sketch out some ideas of what I want to do in a throwing session. So if I'm throwing on the wheel, that is. I do hand build as well, but not as much as uh, throwing on the wheel. So I will sketch out a basic shape and maybe do some measurements of like what I want the final piece to be. And then depending on which clay body I use, I have to actually do some math and figure out like, okay, I'm firing it at this higher temperature or the slightly lower temperature. So it's gonna shrink this much. So I have to calculate the final form and then what I need to throw it to. So I have to add a certain percentage and take a bunch of measurements. So it's a little bit technical at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then I will weigh out my clay and wedge it. And then I will put it on the wheel, slap it down on the wheel, and then I will center it. And then I will start throwing and hopefully get to that shape and then <laughs> let that dry to a leather hard. And then I will go and trim it and get that all ready so that it'll be greenware and ready for the first firing, which is a bisque firing. And then I will, once it's fully dry, I will put it in the kiln. I will get it fired to a low temp, usually around cone, uh, cone 04. So it's a very low t- temperature. So it just basically makes the clay um, hard, but then it will also make it porous and uh, receptive to any glaze I put on it. So then I'll bring it home because I'm currently firing at the Edge Gallery, which is a clay center as well. So I've been a member there. Uh, throughout the pandemic and they have been a great help for firing all of my stuff because I don't own my own kiln right now (laughs) but hopefully one day (laughs) and uh, so yeah they have been absolutely great and then so I will glaze it I will come up with a glaze combination or one that I've already tested hopefully because glazes are very picky so you always want to make sure you know exactly what you're going to get so I will glaze it so then it will go back into the kiln at a hotter temperature, I believe it's around over 1220 degrees Celsius, I believe it is cone six. I could be slightly wrong off a couple degrees, but it does make a difference. Um, And then it's done, it is done. I will wash it and uh, check for any imperfections because I won't sell anything that has like a slight imperfection or anything. So it has to be perfect Mm -hmm. and then it's up for sale or I will gift it to somebody. (laughs) So yeah, so that's pretty much the process and it takes quite a bit of time. So I, you know, doing my own pottery has really made me also appreciate 
other people's pottery <laughs> quite a bit. So yeah, you can keep all of that in mind when you drink out of your coffee mug. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's a lot of a lot of steps mm-hmm. people probably don't always think about. <laughs> no, especially handmade pottery. It's different right. if it's you know manufactured. There is easier ways to do it, but handmade pottery takes a bit <laughs> of a process. So yeah. yeah. I always thought it looks like really cool or really fun to kind of make ceramics or pottery like that. But I've never it, tried it, but I think it just looks really, really cool. <laughs> you know, I was actually telling Danny that I should teach her how to throw. Because it's, you know, I think anybody can do art. Anybody can create. Um, it's just practice, really. Mm-hmm. It's practice. It's a passion to do it. You really want to just try it. Like, if, if you want to try it, you should try it for sure. Um, yeah, like, we all started somewhere. <laughs> so... Yeah, totally. You should try it. Yeah, just go for it for sure. Mm-hmm. No, when I was really ta- originally talking about the podcast, Danny sent me a bunch of photos of the stuff you've made for for her and things like that. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they all looked really good. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they have quite a few pieces now. <laughs> so. mm-hmm. uh, do you have like a piece that you've made that is like your favorite one? Like what's the you're kind of like, yeah, what's like your favorite thing you've created? My favorite thing. This is a very difficult question. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would say, I could say maybe my most, one of my, a couple of my most interesting pieces, which have interestingly enough been some ha- hand-built pieces actually. So I haven't actually thrown them on the wheel, um, but I've built them basically just on a table. And one was actually an art school, which was a long time ago now <laughs> but it was a very 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 large piece I I want to say maybe for me at least it, like maybe 20 inches across and then like a couple feet tall or something like that it was it was a large piece and I hand built it all from scratch and then we fired it in the wood kiln at the University of Manitoba and it took up a ton of space, which was not very courteous of me. <laughs> not looking back now, but it turned out so great. It's actually at my parents' house. They kind of took it from me. So, <laughs> but that was actually one of my favorite pieces, just the wood fire, um, really organic looking uh, texture is what um, was created by the fire. Just excellent. It's very hard to get like a wood firing um, in the city. So, that was really cool. And then also uh, lately I've been doing more uh, organic sea inspired ceramics. So I started putting or hand sculpting barnacles on pieces and making them look kind of like they're just from the sea or they're like a really old piece, but like obviously they're brand new because I made it. <laughs> but uh, really trying to get that texture and experimenting with different colors and kind of bringing awareness to the sea. I actually was uh, at uh, Lake Lake, Ma- Lake Winnipeg, rather, and uh, at Grand Beach. There's so many zebra mussels. So I was actually thinking, what if I did a piece that was just covered in zebra mussels to bring some awareness to the, the, the issues that are going on with that lake? Yeah, that's so, awesome. Yeah. So yeah, I'm kind of trying to bring some of the environmental issues that we're we're facing right now into my art 
I did do a show in 2017 called Earth and Ice, and it was just all uh, melting icebergs. And okay. yeah, so uh, yeah, I, like climate change and stuff is a big part of like, it's an important issue to me. And I really want to do what I can with my art to bring awareness to it. Yeah, that kind of ties into like the last question I was going to ask, which is the same oh. one I asked Rob, which is how does like, what is your experience with science and kind of like the environmental aspect, like how you like how you kind of just described bringing that into your art? Yeah. Um, so Yeah, so that's the thing, like, um, I didn't talk too much about like doing camera work or anything, but like that does tie into I, I've worked on some documentaries and planning on working on some other documentaries that uh, address climate change and so I'm able to use like my visual uh, expertise if you want to call it I don't know <laughs> <laughs> with the uh, camera work uh, and bringing awareness to the climate change issues but also yeah like in the past and like currently I'm trying to do different like unique ways of bringing awareness to climate change through my art so yeah I hope that answered your question <laughs> yeah <laughs> Awesome. Um, maybe now we'll jump over to the science side of things and talk to you, Danny. Hi. <laughs> so you actually just got back from the north. Can you talk about what it was like up at Nineveh and what you were doing up there? Sure. So I just got back yesterday afternoon. I was up there for five weeks. Uh, it's a pretty isolated place up there. You have to it's plain access only. Mm -hmm. So it's on, if you picture the map of Canada and there's all those islands way up in Northern Nunavut, I was on one of those islands. And I was based at the Canadian Higher Tech Research Station, as you mentioned. And I went up to continue collecting data for my now PhD. So my PhD was just approved like two months ago. So it's kind of it's so weird hearing people say I'm a PhD student. It's so new. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so I basically just roamed around the tundra looking for freshwater sites. And yeah, I was looking for freshwater invertebrates. And I just tried my best to sample from as many microhabitats as I could access. So I was doing deep water stuff in the middle of lakes. I was doing rivers and streams. I was doing like little tiny ponds. And then I also actually just did a 40 kilometer backcountry canoe trip last week. Uh, we did that over three days and I did a lot of sampling in a geographical area that has not been looked at yet. So that was pretty exciting. Yeah, that's super exciting. Did you like, do you know kind of what your, your findings from that area are? Like, did you discover anything? cool in in the kind of that unsampled area um yeah I don't I can't really speak to that in any definitive terms because I need to get all those samples DNA barcoded right but yeah. I have a really good feeling that we found some stuff that I don't have in my DNA catalog yet and we did have a piece of equipment that I borrowed from the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. It's called a YSI. And it's basically a probe that you put into water and it measures things like temperature, conductivity. This one had a mercury concentration sensor. 
Um, so I got all this contextual information that it was awesome because they lent me that equipment and the information that I got is going to be used by a number of different scientists. So it's really cool working collaboratively like that. And yeah, so yeah, that, that will be new information, which is exciting. And yeah, like I said, I, I can't really say for sure, <laughs> but we did find some really cool plants and stuff. I, I don't study plants, but I don't know. I just like them. They're, they're neat. And I sent pictures to my friends who, my friend who's a botanist, who's curating the herbarium at the Canadian Higher Tech Research Station. And she said she hadn't seen them yet. So that was kind of oh. cool. Yeah, that's exciting. <laughs> so can you talk a bit about like what um, your research is overall, like for your PhD, what like your plans are and what you were sampling for? Yeah, totally. So I started my project as a master's student and the goal was to build the DNA barcode reference library for Victoria Island and Nunavut for freshwater invertebrates. And that is contributing to this giant project called Arctic Bioscan. And the goal of that project is to DNA barcode all Arctic life. And it turns out the most diverse group in the Arctic is insects and arthropods, which isn't actually that surprising if you're if you're in, if you're into biology. So we had to spend a lot of time sampling for terrestrial invertebrates, but they weren't really sampling that much for aquatic stuff. So I joined to fill that gap. And so that's my first chapter is just building that reference library. And yeah, it currently doesn't exist. So I'm filling <laughs> a pretty big gap in the literature, which is cool. And once I have that reference library going, in the future, when people go to sequence anything from there, um, there there will be a record in our online library, so it'll be easy to identify things. So that's kind of my goal is to make things easier for other people. <laughs> so I'm doing I'm doing like the hard the hard work, which I love. I I think it's a really exciting project, and then I'm using the DNA to do some phylogeographic analyses. So comparing the invertebrate community on Victoria Island to other places in the Arctic to see how similar or dissimilar they are. And, and then I added a chapter for my PhD and I'm going to be modeling, doing some predictive modeling to see what the risk of invasive species into this area of the Arctic is. Yeah, that's super interesting. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah. And it sounds like it builds a lot of um, at least with like the database and stuff, you're doing a lot of the like base groundwork for like future scientists can use in the future as well. Yeah, and it's been, so I, I have, my first chapter is almost done. I'm actually writing the manuscript for it right now. Nice. And in one field season in 2019, I found 344 species of, of freshwater invertebrates. And 54 of those were new records to our our DNA database. So that that was super exciting to see. You know, I I was the one on the ground collecting those samples. I processed them and submitted them for barcoding. So it was really cool seeing all of that work come to that final thing where, you know, I put in I coded some stuff in R and then it it you know that information came up. 344 distinct 
bins. And I was like, what? That is so crazy because nobody nobody thought that there was that much diversity up there. So yeah, it was yeah. really cool seeing that. No, yeah, that's amazing. So can you talk a little bit about doing Arctic field work and what kind of that's like and actually being kind of out there collecting your samples? Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing. I would not trade it for the world. And I'm so lucky that I'm paid to go do something that I love so much. Um, it can be quite dangerous. And I have a lot of training. Like I did, well, I was trained as a polar bear guard in Churchill. So I have experience with um, deterring wildlife. And in, in Cambridge Bay, there's not that many polar bears, but they do get quite a few grizzlies because the grizzlies mm-hmm. will walk across the Northwest Passage from the mainland uh, when there's ice. And then when the ice melts, they'll get like stuck on the island. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there are grizzlies around. And actually this summer, there were, I think, six reports from like kind of around town where, where my field sites were. Mm-hmm. So there, there are are pretty significant safety considerations when you're doing Arctic field work, um, whether it's temperature, you know, environmental conditions or wildlife, there's also wolves up there too. So yeah, but like I said, I, I wouldn't trade it for anything and I love it so much. And I'm so grateful I, I got to do that canoe expedition as well. That was a brand new experience for me. And we're actually already planning m- longer and further away trips for next summer. So we're going to book some float some float planes and book some gear from the Polar Continental Shelf program and and get out there. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, that sounds like that sounds yeah, amazing. I definitely I love going to Churchill and kind of being out there and I imagine it's yeah, I would love to like go back to the north sometime and just yeah, really amazing experience. I support you. You you should do it. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. <laughs> So you, yeah, operated out of the research station up there. Can you describe kind of what that's like and what the the research station? Um, I know you gave us a kind of a nice tour during our lab meeting uh, the other week, which is really cool. I tried. The internet there is so bad. It was yeah. it was rough, but yeah. So the Canadian Arctic Re- High Arctic Research Station is this enormous facility. It's hard to describe how big it is. Uh, I think there's something like. I don't know, like 16 labs inside and each lab has a distinctive purpose. So there's like an aquatics lab and a necropsy lab and a growth chamber lab and a DNA sequencing lab. And like the list just goes on. Um, However, they opened, they officially opened, it's called CHARS. That's what we call it for short. And they opened it August, 2019. And then like a few months, few months later, the pandemic hit So it's technically been closed to the public since then because it's a federal, federally operated facility. Um, The the government agency responsible for CHARS is Polar Knowledge Canada, which is under Indigenous and Northern Affairs Canada. So, yeah, it was it's was really quiet when I was there this year. And it was really nice, though, because I had this huge lab all to myself and I had access to everything super easily because I wasn't have, I wasn't having to share it with anybody. Right. So that was pretty, pretty awesome. It's, it's just such a stunning facility and I, I can't wait to see more, more research happening in there. And I'm really, I'm especially excited to see 
members of the public visiting because there hasn't been a lot of many people haven't been able to go in there and it's kind of funny because it's like in town it's right on the edge of town and it's just this huge mysterious facility that a lot of people don't really know what goes on inside so i'm i'm looking forward to next summer when we can do more like outreach initiatives and stuff especially with kids yeah that'd be great for like the building to actually be used to kind of its full full ability or full capacity like to see everything that can happen there I can't wait to see that. It's going to be beautiful. <laughs> so you've mentioned before that you enjoy scientific communication. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and about doing outreach and things like that? Yeah, I think outreach is fundam- a fundamental component of doing research. And I don't fully understand why more scientists don't put more time into it. Because <laughs> I don't know, for me personally, I I don't know, like if I'm doing research, I don't, I understand that it's important for a variety of reasons, but I also think that if you're not communicating it to the public or, or the people who my research is impacting the most, then like, why, why even do it? Mm-hmm. So with, with DNA barcoding, it's a little bit hard because I can't just say to the community of Cambridge Bay, here's a technical report with 2500 DNA sequences like that doesn't matter nobody cares about that and you need a lot of training to be able to decipher what's going on with that right so what I do is I use my social media to post like stories and stuff about what I'm doing in the field and what I'm doing in the community and that actually resulted in something really cool this summer so uh, there are some locals that follow me on Instagram for example and one of them reached out to me and we had a good discussion because he was wondering about um, bear skulls and cleaning bear skulls. So often to clean an animal skull, they'll put it in the ocean so that bugs eat all the flesh off of it. But he was wondering if there would be bugs in a pond that could do the same thing. And I was like, oh my God, someone from the community is actually asking me about (laughs) bugs. Like this is my dream because nobody, it's hard to get people like pumped up about insects. Mm -hmm. So, and especially aquatic insects, which people don't really see a whole lot. So I went back in my data and I found some, I found a site that had a lot of predaceous diving beetle larvae. And I thought, okay, out of any of the bugs that I found in these ponds, that's probably going to be the one that eats flesh. So yeah, he dropped off the bear skulls and I went and and dropped them off in a pond for him. And we're doing a little side experiment to see if the bugs actually eat the flesh. <laughs> but yeah, and, and in other terms of um, SciComm, um, I've written like plain language articles about about what this project is and why it matters and the importance of um, communicating results and findings to communities in the North. And I'm also working on this large project with the Arctic Eider Society. So they created a, they call it um, an indigenous, what is it called? Indigenous knowledge, something it's an app basically it's basically like iNaturalist but for northern hunters so you can make a profile on it you can post all about like let's say sea ice conditions or 
I found a seal, here it was. Oh, it's called the Indigenous Knowledge Social Network. That's what it's called. And it's, yeah, it's called Siku. And it's awesome. It's like really picked up steam in Canada. It was only launched a few years ago. And I thought this would be a great platform for us to share information about Arctic Bioscan because we haven't really done much sharing from this project, despite the fact that it's been going on since 2018. And so we're working with the Arctic Eider Society to build a data pipeline from the data repository that we have at the Center for Biodiversity Genomics, which is at the University of Guelph. And so anytime we generate information in the Arctic Bioscan project, it'll be put through this pipeline and put directly onto Siku, which Northerners regularly access and, and it'll all be plain language and it'll the the data will be like analyzed and and we're gonna build some different graphics and stuff so that it's information that is relevant to them. Like I said, I we can't just post like raw sequences. Nobody cares. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows what to do with that. So it's it's like a big project. It's involving quite a few people and and I'm really excited about that. I think it could be huge for us. Yeah, I think that's really, really cool. So let's do one more question. So we've talked a bit about science, um, but do you want to talk a little bit about the art you're involved with or art you really enjoy? Sure. So I I now do beadwork. Um, I'm, I'm part of the Métis Nation in Manitoba. And beadwork is a traditional activity that... I've been wanting to try for a long time, but I don't know. I I kind of, there's this notion that I fall prey to a lot where I don't like trying stuff if I'm not going to be awesome at it the first time I do it. (laughs) And that's, that's kept me from trying other, other art forms as well, because I don't know if it's unfamiliar, then I'm apprehensive about trying it. But I did a couple workshops with a Métis Knowledge Keeper and I started practicing and I practice a lot and I'm, I feel like I'm getting better. I'm, I'm really proud of a few pieces that I've done recently. And actually while I was in Cambridge Bay, a friend of mine is, well, he's currently making me an ulu, which is a traditional knife that Inuit use. And I made some like, um, classic Métis traditional beadwork for him and we're, we're doing a trade. So he's, he's giving me an ulu in exchange for a piece of beadwork I made for him. And I thought that was so awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. And from what yeah. I've seen um, of your work on like on Instagram and stuff, it does look really good. Like I think you are thanks. getting good at it. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's it's crazy how many hours <laughs> I put into each piece. And Tamara was saying earlier um, about how people see things in it um, that you don't really see right away. And yeah, I, I just, I love when people appreciate that stuff. And I've made a lot of beadwork as gifts and stuff. And it just, it feels so good having people appreciate something that you put so much of your heart into. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, I also paint a little bit, not, not as much anymore, but I used to paint like Sometimes I would just get latched onto a painting project and I would just paint like all night until I was done and it'd be like 7 a.m. when I was done. 
of course, I don't have any technical skills or training like Tamara does. Like I'm literally sitting in my parents' living room looking at this beautiful piece I commissioned from Tamara for my mom for last Christmas. <laughs> There's no way I could ever come close to that level of skill and expertise, but I do find it cathartic and I, I do enjoy participating in the arts. I'm also a photographer and Tamara taught me everything I, I know, actually. She kind of took me under her wing like 11 years ago. I was just this teenager with you know a little Canon camera and she would invite me over to her house and sit me down and teach me how to do editing and she would invite me on shoots that she was hired to do and and teach me everything she knew so I really have Tamara to thank for all of the skills I have now with photography and I do a lot of wildlife stuff now. I, I must say I think you're selling yourself a little short you have an extreme amount of talent all because of you Tamara no I I don't think so but (laughs) (laughs) well I appreciate your guidance with all that stuff it's been it's been so great like having your tutelage and guidance and then also I mean I would how many times have I sent you photos and been like is this good (laughs) I, I think I have a billion on my phone so <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is if great. you look at our text conversations I think we have like 2,000 photos shared between us <laughs> from like the, just the last couple years it's insane but yeah she's she's my my go-to when it comes to opinions on on anything artistic that I'm producing wow so sweet I'm gonna cry <laughs> <laughs> but like seriously though like Danny's I'm, I'm sorry if I'm interrupting here but no, you're uh, good. D- Danny's bird photography has is just incredible I, like I can't do anything like close to what she's doing so she, like I must say Danny selling yourself a little short <laughs> but uh, I, I, I did practice a whole lot like during the pandemic I I bought a big telephoto because I was I mean everything was shut down and I was recovering from a traumatic brain injury and I found that doing photography didn't trigger symptoms. So I spent like three months photographing birds in my parents' backyard. And yeah, it, it takes practice, but I absolutely love it. Yeah, that's amazing. And I, I agree. I've seen the photos too. And I think they're, they're really good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so I guess now we'll move on to our final guest, Camille. Hey, Sam. Hello, how are you? All good. Great. That's good. So do you want to talk a little bit about the research projects you've worked on, particularly those um, focused around the North or Churchill? Yeah, for sure. So actually, my first Arctic work experience was in in Churchill. It was um, on Violet Island uh, in, in Nunavut as well. And that was my kind of first foray into to, to the north uh, in Canada and uh, it's what made me want to go back again you know mm-hmm. uh, up there I was mostly working with birds and lemmings but my like academic background was more with insects and I had done a lot of work with spiders before so uh, I got really interested in kind of the insects and stuff that I found there which led me to uh, this research research project I did for my master's which was um, working with new DNA monitoring techniques in Churchill, Manitoba, and uh, focusing on uh, certain aquatic insects. 
Um, I remember we talked a little bit about in the last episode too. Ian mentioned uh, the Trichoptera and the in the ponds and their casts and things like that. That's where we met for the first time too. Was up in Churchill. Yeah, exactly. So project. yeah, in Churchill, I was working um, most closely with uh, caddisflies, which are really like criminally underrated like order of insects. They're basically like cross between like a fly and a butterfly. And the, the kind of the gimmick that they have is that they're, so they have a caterpillar phase, right? Just like butterflies, mm -hmm. but the caterpillar is underwater. So they, they develop, they start off as aquatic insects. And then when they pupate, when they transform into a flying insect, they emerge from the water and they can fly and they're pollinators and they're food for fish and all that kind of stuff. But so the, the larvae are, colloquially referred to as like architects of the pond, you know, because they make cases, their cocoons aren't woven out of silk, but they're also, they're, they're, they're materials from the pond. So rocks and sticks and leaves and moss are woven together with their silk, but it gives them really distinctive cases that are sometimes like distinctive species. And um, they're basically like little works of art. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, there are some like that that are really pretty and really, really cool. There's actually a, a French artist uh, called Hubert Duprat that uh, he puts the larvae in, in tanks that are just, the, the bottom of the tank is covered with like gold flakes and gemstones and precious metals, and they weave like jewelry for him, which <laughs> like he uses as in, in his art pieces. And it's just, it's so cool. It's so cool to me that like, you know, there's this, partnership between the insects and this artist to, to make these beautiful, beautiful little things. Yeah, that's really, really cool. So what um, are you working on kind of currently? You've finished your <laughs> master's now. <laughs> Nothing to do with anything I just mentioned. Um, <laughs> so I, I am now in food. So mm -hmm. um, I kind of fell into this completely by accident. And it kind of like took, took a life of its own, I guess. But um, I uh, co-own a uh, plant-based foods company where we make um, plant-based versions of like meat and dairy products and, and stuff like that. And it really just started from the fact that I uh, I had gone vegan shortly before my master's. And um, one of my close friends at the University of Guelph is a food scientist, Jay Nong, a brilliant food scientist. And I kind of asked her like, hey, vegan cheese sucks. Like, make something better for me um please and uh, we kind of worked on it for fun as a side thing there was a research competition we entered just to get a bit of funding um just to mostly be able to buy groceries and stuff and to get free food which is kind of our main motivator i guess <laughs> but um that kind of worked out like we ended up winning that research competition and it just so happened it was a like it, it reunited a bunch of different like i guess priorities the university had which was like entrepreneurship food development and sustainability and so we found ourselves with a lot of funding that we weren't expecting to get and and things just kind of like blew up from there and now it's 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 a full-time job surprisingly enough with with employees and payrolls and and Facebook ads and, and things I would never have thought I was I'd be working with. Yeah, that's awesome. It definitely took off and doing well, which is exciting. 
I still haven't tried. I've been meaning to order uh, from their website and try some of the <laughs> <laughs> the food there. There's um, actually a couple stores in the Guelph where you, you can Oh, get, nice. But, um, but yeah, we can connect on both now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to try the vegan cheese as well, but I see that that's, I don't know if that's available yet. But cheese was a uh, was a another victim of a pandemic. I think yeah. it uh, it did not uh, like it, it. It was just too complicated a process, and the scale of process was annoying. And at the start of a pandemic, our production facility shut down. Yada yada yada. The cheese is sadly no longer um, a product we sell, but uh, we do sell uh, a couple of different plant based meats now. Yes, which is very exciting. So what was kind of like the process, I guess, of creating a company and like going through that? Or like, what's the next, like, what's your plan? Like, what's the next steps like from here? It's it's both way, 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 way easier than you think and also way <laughs> harder than you think. Um, it's weird because it's like we keep kind of asking ourselves, like, why do people trust us? Like, they know we're just like <laughs> scientists that don't know what businesses like initially our thought was like you know you make a good product right and then it mm-hmm. just sells itself and yeah that's very far from the truth um and the truth is like honestly the sad truth is probably like your product is not nearly as important as the marketing the people who like are backing you and the money you have the funding you have it's very much pay to win which is kind of like the sad realization that we came to um but yeah no it's it's it kind of happened without us knowing that, you know, we found the company and that that we started needing to have employees to contract out certain work to get larger suppliers because our suppliers, like our first few batches, we got all of our greens from bulk barn. And at some point that's not scale upable anymore, right? So it's it's weird. It's very much go with the flow and there's a lot of stuff that people just like won't tell you that you kind of have to figure out by yourself but we found that the most useful for us was definitely like just asking other people who've been through it and like who have a bit of an idea of how they got there but um it's very much like if there's imposter syndrome in academia there is very much so imposter syndrome in business as well yeah that makes sense there's a lot that goes into it, I guess, that people who aren't starting a business wouldn't really think about. Yeah, I think that was kind of like what was surprising to us is kind of that the, the whole marketing and paid marketing and the different techniques you can market, because especially with food, I guess the 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 thing that matters most with food is how the thing tastes, right? Like mm-hmm. that, that's, at the end of the day, that's what matters with food. And you can have the like most interesting product in the world. If it tastes like crap, no one's going to buy it, right? Right. But so there's very much this this idea that, yeah, tasting is believing with, with food product. So, you know, since the pandemic, there has been no food tasting in stores, right? Um, Costco isn't doing its sampling and, and all that kind of stuff. So you're suddenly having to be like, okay, well, how do we get people to try this how do we convince people that this is good that this tastes different there's there's all that challenge Mm -hmm, for sure what are kind of your plans for the future in the company do you have plans to like I don't know scale up even farther what's kind of like your next steps so I guess most recently um we we've just about a 
three weeks ago, I think, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, we launched in the US, mm-hmm. which that's been, that was a long time coming. That's a, like, that was a big step for us, just like figuring out export of food products and dealing with the FDA and right. and all of that kind of thing. So, so that was definitely a, a challenge. And now I think for the foreseeable future, just really like honing in on that market, making sure all of our products are available there, looking at other places. So this might interest raw, but we have gotten some interest from like some Australian companies and distributors to to start selling over there. Although that's a whole other like level of <laughs> bureaucracy. I don't think I'm ready for right now. But um, yeah, definitely right now it's kind of like giving more, making more options and and offering them to more people is I think the, the simplest way of kind of how, how our priorities are right now. Yeah, that's awesome. That's exciting. It definitely, yeah, would be exciting to be, I guess, in like a lot of different countries like Australia, but there's definitely probably a lot of things to consider and hoops to jump through to so many achieve hoops. those all, things. <laughs> for the US, it's like you had to call up this one organization that's affiliated with the government for, and they give you a number and then the number goes to this other government organization and then you need that number. <laughs> association to give you a letter code and that letter code goes to pfda and then that you give to a cane border agency and then that goes to your broker and it's like it's <laughs> there's there's so many like it's it's definitely a parody of bureaucracy at that point i think a lot of steps <laughs> so maybe we'll jump back to talking a little bit about research and arctic and stuff so do you want to talk a little bit about because you've gone to churchill for uh, multiple summers during your master's. Do you want to talk a little bit about, I guess, field work or what like Churchill was like as a place to and a research center and things like that? So yeah, no, the Churchill Research Center was was really a, an amazing place to work out this work out of, especially like as a young scientist because you're with other young scientists. It's very much a learning center. Um, the people there really is what made it an amazing, amazing place to be at with just the amount of support and knowledge and experience that that the people had to, to share. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I actually really like that's on theme with kind of this conversation that we've been having is that they had uh, quite a few artists in residence going through the oh. center. And I, I don't think actually any your year, because um, that was the year that the train had just gone out. So I think that program had been paused. But the year after, they had flown in a, a couple of artists. One uh, Québécois filmmaker, uh, a German photographer, I believe. Uh, actually, she was living full time in Nunavut at that time. And a Boston multimedia artist um, who it was just great to connect with them and to take them out uh, doing field work for us sometimes and, and to see the, the north through this other perspective. Mm-hmm. No, that sounds super cool. Yeah, I feel like the summer I was there was a little different just because of the the train situation. Yeah, that's an understatement, I think. Yeah. Uh, I <laughs> yeah, it was. It, no summer I've been there has been the same, to, to be to be fair. And I mm-hmm. think it goes back to what Rob was saying, is that there's just so many large events there that kind of reshape just the whole, the whole situation, the whole, yeah. the whole picture. Do you have a favorite thing about the Arctic or about doing research up there? So I think one of the things that surprised me as to how much I end up liking it that was not on my radar at all when I started was um, 
and this is, I think is also a bit more prevalent in the Manitoba in the Arctic, um, from what I know, is the presence of wild orchids mm-hmm. in the field. So there's about nine, nine or so, I think, wild orchids that are fairly common in Churchill. And like finding them while you're doing field work is just the coolest little thing because you're not expecting these delicate little flowers up there. And there's just like they're they're like 10 centimeters hot, tall <laughs> and they're just they surprise you. And then it's just like you have to pause whatever you're doing to admire them, obviously. Right. That's mm-hmm, the contract we have with orchids. Um, and and that was definitely something I did not think I, I'd be taken back with me so much as a, such a big passion for plants and and wild orchids in, in particular. Yeah, there is a lot of, of really cool plant life up there. And I think I bought the the plant guide for Churchill when I was there. I still have it here. Which is an exceptionally good plant guide. guide. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll do one more question, same as I asked Danny. What has been your experience with the arts? Or is there arts that you really love or are involved with? Yeah, no. Um, I think I I don't do I I don't do enough like more like traditional art using traditional mediums. Uh, I think I think where I found the like the best use of like artistic like left brain kind of activities has been through cooking and mm-hmm. especially with like fermentation recently. And I find that's a really cool like bridge between like art and science because like especially when you're fermenting something there's a certain amount of science to like not end up poisoning yourself for sure (laughs) but then there's so much art of like you know what's the theme behind the dish you're making right is there a kind of like different cultural influences joining together in your dish Mm -hmm. is there how do the flavors like play with each other and I think there's a lot of people who compare like flavors and and food to music because I think there is a lot of those, like, like we, we use it, right? What kind of flavor notes are you hitting? Um, what kind of how loud the dish is? And and I think that's been really the coolest, especially with the pandemic, right? Um, well, yeah. Way of exploring, like, food and art. Yeah, no, that's, that's super cool. And I feel like you don't always consider that, I guess, when you're cooking. But it's nice to, to think about all the different aspects and to look at, I guess, Absolutely. making a meal it makes the act itself like way less routine and just mm-hmm. a lot more fun to to play around with and explore. Yeah, it's a lot more enjoyable kind of looking at creating your dinner like that than just like, oh, I have to make food now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For sure. Okay, so thank you so much, everyone, for talking to me about the work you've done and the areas that you're passionate about. Now we're on to the last part of the podcast where we kind of bring the science and art together. So I'm going to give you about 10 minutes to come up with some kind of art piece. It could be something musical. It could be like a visual art thing. But like I mentioned earlier, I have to like link it or describe it because we're audio only. Or it can be like a pitch for something else, like a pitch for a bigger project or a play or something like that. Um, Really anything that communicates or shows some aspect of science we talked about um, using skills of the artists. But I will give you 10 minutes. And I'll come back and you can show me what you got. So obviously we're going to do a northern theme, like, duh. But have you ever played for bugs? I'm picturing, like, 
a gallery and Rob's there playing cello and there's like pieces around of, like you said, the technical like drawings or paintings or whatever of bugs and then, you know, waterscapes and stuff like that. It might be cool where like the audience or whoever was seeing it could um, see these creatures firsthand. Camille could make some concoction with like a, a bug protein powder. <laughs> yeah. I'm writing this you down. You could put I'm some bugs in like falafel or something, Camille. I honestly, though, I wouldn't want to eat any of my specimens, but I like where you're going. No, with, like, I'm like, the, thing. the cases are a bit crunchy in the cast. <laughs> We're leaning towards like a multi sensory event. What would a smell be? <laughs> oh my god, pond no, we could, we could bring some pond, you know, that like super organic detritus that just smells like sewage. Yeah, wonderful. <laughs> let's, let's keep mm. that away from the food area. What kind of instruments would you like to uh, be? Two violins, a cellist, double bass, clarinet. We'll get David Rothenberg, because mm-hmm. yeah, in an ideal scenario, he'd be involved. Mm-hmm. Um, so he'll come up with his clarinet. We'll a drummer and a massive gong. Okay. Yeah. Tamara, Smart. did you write all that down? And then maybe a sculpture or two. Mm. Yeah, for a touch. So I'm okay. Back I feel like this is a pretty solid plan. Hi. Up. Hi. <laughs> okay. Hello. So, I mean, if you have any last things to discuss, you definitely can. On. But uh, what's uh. What have you got? What have you been working on? Okay. Uh, so, yeah, I think, Tamara, do you want to start off? Okay, sure. Um, we've come up with a multi-sensory event. Um, so it's definitely mixed media and plays on the different senses, um, as, as I've described. So one of the things that I would be doing would be different water paintings um, and different paintings of the ponds and places that these bugs that Danny and, but, <laughs> but, oh, yeah, yeah, come here. yeah um, study. Um, yeah, so like where they live. So I'd be painting different uh, basically environments and then also technical drawings of the bugs and possibly a larger sculpture of the bugs that people can um, see and maybe even touch. And then, Danny. Mm. Yeah, so (laughs) I think, yeah, Camille and I would contribute by bringing in live samples from ponds. Mm -hmm. So having, I guess, like some kind of tank and then we could have, there There are microscopes that you can project onto a wall. So we could project like a live video feed from a microscope of invertebrate specimens that we, we catch. So that would be sort of like a live component where you can see the bugs, well, the way they move and stuff like that. Cool. Yeah. And I had a plan, but after hearing all of that back, I've got a different one. So I'll, I'll go with plan one. <laughs> But they could also go together. All right, so I was going to send Danny up to Cambridge Bay with a bunch of my recording equipment so she can place a hydrophone in the water and record what the specimens are 
vocalizing in the water and just having that aquatic ambient sound as a foundation for a composition I'd write for cello, two violins, clarinet, bass, drums, and a big gong. But now I'm thinking you can have that performance of that composition, but also at the same time, while while the event is occurring, you could put the hydrophone into water and you could link it up to a bunch of different effects. So through the Ooh. throughout the event, people listen to what the specimen, the live specimens are doing at the event, but Ooh. also run it through a bunch of different like distortions, delays, reverbs, and just kind of manipulate what the specimens are are vocalizing and yeah make it make it super interactive for people to kind of play with and yeah that sounds super cool mm-hmm. that sounds awesome yeah, oh, we really gotta like do that. it now don't we yeah. <laughs> and yeah. i think every good event needs like a food and drink pairing um mm-hmm. so we obviously want some something for people to not get hungry <laughs> so i think we need something that kind of fits in with this theme of you know the arctic insects and all that so potentially have actual insects in the food oh. but i think it makes sense that you know ingredients are sourced north and they've got the uh, like the northern spin to them be that with like specific berries or um or plants and animals from from the region mm-hmm. we could make tea like traditional teas with cassiope mm-hmm. uh, or labrador tea that would be really cool absolutely are there any other underwater plants that can be used as teas? Because I know there are some. Yeah, there's a lot of um, like horsetails. I don't know if yeah. I would drink anything with horsetails in it, though. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we can make them into straws or something. Like I'm trying to like fit into Ooh, yeah. the pond. Oh, that would be cool. <laughs> Tiny little ponds. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's the summary of our idea. Yeah, yeah. I like it. That's like. Yeah, you have like multiple uh, ideas kind of wrapped together into a whole a whole thing there. So that's awesome. Would you attend it? I would attend it for sure. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> I think it would be very What's well. our grade? What's our grade? You're oh definitely like A, A plus. Wow. <laughs> That'll yeah. do it. All stars all around. <laughs> I feel like we should do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Honestly? We're we're like actually tempted to fly Camille out. <laughs> <laughs> here because we're all in Winnipeg now so exactly. yeah I'm here yeah, yeah, that, yeah that would be you know it it is possible to do if you guys are interested I have a space and stuff so <gasps> okay, okay let's, let's okay, well, well we've got a year we got to wait yeah. until Danny goes back up exactly so, we'll, yeah. we'll okay. stay in contact it's a yeah. good time to plan a year in advance it is so. there you go yeah I it's love that <laughs> Sweet. Well done, everyone. <laughs> yeah, good job. I love that. Definitely, uh, you know, keep me updated on the, the planning stages <laughs> as this uh, takes yeah. shape. <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah, so that, we're almost about an hour 45. So I guess that brings us about to the end of episode two. I want to thank you all again for being here. And I'm so glad we could finally record and talk. And I, I love the idea <laughs> you came up with at the end there. Um, before we go, is there anything any of you would like to promote? Any websites, social media, et cetera, and I'll throw links and stuff in the bio as well. 
You can follow me on my Instagram at heyrobnags. You can also go to my website, robnags.com. It will be going through a, a rebranding in the next six months or so. So And he has Spotify. His music's on Spotify. Oh, yeah, you can follow me on Spotify. <laughs> and anyway, you can stream good music. Um, you can follow me also on Instagram at Tamara underscore. And I have a link in my bio that links to my website and my Etsy page. I am also going through a rebranding on my website in the next probably three to six months. But um, yeah, you can check out my Etsy and my pieces available and just my my process for my art on my Insta. And I'm definitely going to plug my 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 company website so Hope you can you find us should. yes right <laughs> yeah <laughs> so you can uh, check our products learn a bit more about us at neophytofoods.com that's n-e-o-p-h-y-t-o foods.com and neophytofoods is the handle on all of our social media as well and i post a lot on instagram so i use that platform as a way to share my wildlife photography it's mostly birds and I try to write some, you know, information about the species in each caption. My Instagram is at Danny Manitoba. And I also recently published a, an article talking about my research. So Sam, I can send you that link and it would be cool if you could share it as well. Yeah, for sure. I'll definitely share that as well as links to, to everything else. Uh, so if you're listening out there, definitely check out all of those and see what... Uh, everyone that's going on on their social media and websites. Um, and thank you all again for being here. And thank you to everyone who might be listening to this episode. Hopefully I'll continue to make more. Um, yeah, and hopefully this one doesn't take too long to edit. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you. thanks for having us, Sam. Absolutely. Uh, so, until next time, uh, goodbye. <laughs>